On April 17, 2009, a young man mysteriously disappears in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Several days later, he's found dead in a pond with no apparent cause of death. What happened? You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Jelani Brinson. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. We are recording on a Saturday, Dan. It looks like it's about to come a storm. Yeah, it's going to rain. But, dude, this case is crazy. I mean, how many times have we said that before? <laughs> uh, Peace Cat reached out on Patreon and said, Are y'all just trying to find the weirdest cases you possibly can? Yeah, that's the whole, like, that's that's our shtick, man. Like, that's the, that's the game. And we don't disappoint. We find some weird shit. And this one is out there. Well, before we get into it, since it happened in Minnesota and we can't get Minnesota beer, we're going to go with the old standby Sweetwater 420. I'm drinking lemonade. I don't know what you're talking about. That wasn't me. <laughs> oh, man. Nothing on the five-star review front. Nope. Nothing Nobody. on the Patreon front. Nobody loves us, man. So we're going to jump into it, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody knows. We used to be... <laughs> we used to mean something to people. But now we're just forgotten. <laughs> fart in a dust storm. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Jelani Brinson was born on December the 2nd, 1984. He was 24 years old and stood 5 foot 9 inches tall and weighed anywhere from between 150 and 165 pounds, depending on what you read. His hair was fashioned in cornrows, and he graduated from high school at Fourth Baptist Christian School in North Minneapolis. That's in Minnesota. Yeah, it's cold up there. <laughs> He was born when it was cold, too. It's Minnesota. It's probably going to be cold all the time. I don't know. I've never been, but I'm assuming it's just like a frigid winter wonderland in July. <laughs> <laughs> Jelani was working for the Sprint Corporation for five years and had recently been promoted and received a raise in pay. Nice. He was working as a sales consultant on the floor at the stores on Jolly Lane and Colorado Lane in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. His promotion moved him to the Edina store. He was very active in his church and had a strong faith. Brinson's parents were divorced, and he had been living with his father, Donnie, who was helping him take care of his daughter. Donnie Brinson was watching his daughter, Zion, on the night of April 17, 2009. Now, Jelani would leave his father's house in North Minneapolis, where the two of them were taking care of Zion around 7.30 p.m. Jelani arrived at Mad Jack Sports Cafe in Brooklyn Park, where he was seen by a group of girls that he went to meet. While at Mad Jack's, he called his mother, Alice Hamilton, on her cell phone. Funny thing is, Alice was at Mad Jack's, too, and never heard the phone ring over the crowded restaurant. I mean, how I don't know how big this place is, but if your own mother is at a the same exact place you are, how do you not know? How do you not see each other? 
Well, Jelani didn't leave her a message. And like you said, they never bumped into each other. And Alice is quoted as saying, it's just eerie that we were both there and we never saw each other. This is weird. So after he doesn't leave a message on his mom's cell phone, he then meets a colleague from the Sprint store on Jolly Lane at around 8 p.m. And the two of them go over to another Sprint store on Colorado Lane where he talks to two other coworkers. Next, around 8.30 p.m., Jelani briefly interacts with his younger brother at his home in Brooklyn Park. He then returns to his father's place and plays with his daughter for a while. At approximately 9 p.m., he left there to go visit with the same girls from Mad Jack's some more. The girls had moved to Victory Grill on Colorado Lane, which Colorado Lane <laughs> on Colorado Lane, which was near the Sprint store. According to witnesses, he never made it there. Instead, Jelani would end up at a quote house party in Anoka Present. I love how you went out of your way to air quote like they can see air it. quote when it's just me looking at you. Well, at least you got it. <laughs> So at the party were the two co-workers and a brother of another co-worker. According to the three, Jelani arrived at the party around 10 p.m. Shortly thereafter, he receives a phone call and, abrupt, and abruptly leaves the house. Yeah, they said like he literally just like stood up, didn't say goodbye, didn't just left. He was gone. It's very odd behavior. So they go outside to look for him about five minutes later when he didn't come back in. And by their estimates, it's 10.05, so you're probably looking 10.20 at the latest, and that's the last time he's seen on Friday, April 17th, 2009. Now, his mother, Alice, was an, or is an emergency room nurse, so she calls police late Saturday afternoon in a panic after her son failed to show up at his job, and he failed to come back to see his daughter that night. What's even stranger is he also had not picked up his car. Hmm. So on Sunday, April 19th, 2009, a search was initiated by local police. Along with the police, friends and family, and three search dogs began looking for Jelani. What they find is his winter hat and one of his new Adidas tennis shoes. Just one. That's so strange. On the other side of a neighbor's wooden fence near railroad tracks. And this is just across the street from the house that he left. Correct. Now, the other shoe was found south of the railroad tracks in an industrial area near Highway 10 and St. Francis Boulevard in Anoka. Search dogs would track Brinson's scent from his friend's home in Anoka to an area about a mile and a half west. The scent trail ended about 100 yards behind the outpost bar. His family would ask the bar to view their security tapes, and they obliged, but they never saw any sign of Jelani. Police Chief Phil Joe Hansen said the next day the, they, the search expanded with police and fire rescue crews searching the Rum River in Anoka. Mm. So around 1 p.m. on Saturday, April 25th, so we're looking at roughly eight days after he is last seen, an employee of the Greenhaven Golf Course in Anoka saw something floating in the middle 
of a large pond on the west side of the clubhouse between holes 10, 11, and 18. So he goes to take a closer look and discovers that it's a body. The man's name has been quoted as an Bob, and Bob calls 911 immediately. So law enforcement arrive and find Jelani floating on his back in approximately two to three feet of water. He was found with his face exposed above the water and his right hand sticking up out of the water. Now, the location of this is about 1,500 feet from where Jelani was last seen, across the street and over some railroad tracks from the home that he was at on Kennedy Street. Now, Brinson's body, or Jelani's body did not have any shoes on him. He was in his sock feet, but his socks were clean as a whistle. So, yeah, you don't walk into a pond with white socks on and have them stay clean. It's Well, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but if you can show me how you do it, I would love to learn. Especially the fact that your shoes have been found 1,500 feet across yeah. a railroad track. Yeah, and some odd circumstances. Now, there was a book written... And it's similar to the missing 411, and it's called A Case Studies in Drowning Forensics. And it's written by Kevin Gannon and D. Lee Gilbertson. And if you are paying attention in the world of true crime, you'll know that that's two of the four men who have started investigating the smiley face killers. So according to their book, they decided to review the events and locations of that evening, trying to make sure that event A, B, and C lined up with the timing of such events and the location and the people saying that they were supposed to be where they are. Er, er. Where they are. Where they are. Yeah, <laughs> As well as Jelani's reported behavior, which according to them just did not make any sense. So Gannon and Gilbertson analyzed and came up with a timeline, and we'll post some of these pictures on our Instagram and our other social medias. It kind of there's a map, and it has all of the things that we referenced in the opening there: the Sprint stores, the country club, the house party, his father's house, all that good stuff. Mad Jacks, but anyway. And then we have a couple of pictures of the pond. It looks like I'm not walking in there. <laughs> on, from one side of it specifically because there's some big brush in there and I think there might be some briars. Okay, so <laughs> they theorize. <laughs> Aren't there briars in Minnesota? I'm pretty sure they, yeah, there is. Mm. I bet they have big briars up there. I don't know. All right, so 7 p.m. Pam. Pam. The evening starts out in North Minneapolis at Donnie Brinson's home where Jelani lived, and remember, Donnie is his father. His daughter was staying the night there, and he was supposed to meet some girls he knew at Mad Jack's Cafe at 7 p.m. He arrived at Mad Jack's around 7.30 and stayed for approximately half an hour. While he was there, remember, he called his mother, Alice, who was also there but never saw the other party. So strange. So strange. And obviously, it's a loud restaurant because... She never heard her phone. So at 8 p.m., and this is all on April 
the 17th, 2009. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot the year. Almost. I was like, dur, 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 dur. all right. So at 8 p.m., an ATM transaction in Brooklyn Park was recorded on Jelani's debit card. He went over to the Sprint store that was nearby, and he picked up a colleague named Edgar, who clocked out of work at 8.10 p.m. The two of them drove over to the other Sprint store on Colorado Lane in Brooklyn Park and met Mark. Now, these are all aliases. And then another co-worker, Lorraine, states that they came into the store around closing time. Jelani stayed there briefly, and then he left. He stopped by his brother's residence in Brooklyn Park around 8.30, and Jelani asked him whether he wanted to go with him to a party at Edgar's house. And the reason I did party in air quotes is because from what I could <laughs> gather, it was Jelani. It's basically just a get-together. Yeah, it and his three party. friends. It wasn't a party. They were no, just hanging out. They were just hanging out. Yeah. Jelani would tell his brother that there probably would be some Mary Jane, some marijuana there, mm. and his brother declined and tried to convince Jelani not to go. Jelani then goes back to his dad's house and plays with his daughter some more. At 9 p.m., Jelani asked Donnie, his father, to watch Zion for a little bit more because he wanted to go back and see the girl some more. Donnie really likes some particular dish at this restaurant that these girls are supposed to be at. So he says, look, I'll watch your kid, but you need to get me a to-go order of whatever it was. And so Jelani's like, no problem, Dad, I'll do that for you. So he goes back to Mad Jack's, and at Mad Jack's around 9.18 p.m., that's when he calls his mother, who happens to be in the same restaurant. So strange. And at 9.21, Jelani sends a text message, and we'll get into that later, and it's a little odd. And then around 9.30, Donnie says that he looks out the window, and he sees Jelani sitting in his car along the curb holding his cell phone. Now, during this same time period, the girls in which Jelani was going to go see again had actually left Mad Jack's and driven over to the Victory Grill, which was near the Sprint store that he originally started with on Colorado Lane. So the girls stay at Victory Grill from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. While they were there, Jelani's brother and a friend of his stopped by the Victory Grill. They asked, the girls asked where Jelani was, and no one had seen him. So at 9.48 p.m., Jelani made his last Facebook entry on his account, and he wrote, expect the unexpected. And that was it. Yeah, clearly. So at 10 p.m., according to those that were present at the, quote, house party, Jelani arrives, walks in, and the house was rented by a co-worker at the Sprint store in Brooklyn, Mark. Mark's half-brother, Richard, lived with him. Statements to investigators indicate that one of the activities that was going on was a little smoking the weed. They got some weed, some of them weeds out of their backyard, and they was just crushing them up, and it's smoking the weed. That's, a, that's, that's one way to do it. Yep, yep, yep. Maybe some dandelion, some clover. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the story... It's hard to get off that clover. <laughs> it is, man. It's got so much chicory in it. You know that chicory? It's, 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 it's. All right, so the story is, like we said earlier, 
Jelani receives a cell phone call at about 10.05. So he had really just walked in and probably sat down. And whatever or whoever was on the other end upset him greatly. And he stands up and he leaves the house through the front door. Now, did they trace it? Did they try to find out who called him? Uh, they do, but it, I don't think it ever goes into who actually called him. Hmm. Now, Jelani tells the people in the house that he's going to go out and smoke a cigarette. And so about five minutes afterwards, they're like, man, that cigarette should be done. And so they walk out, and they can't find him. So they look around the yard. They look around the street. They look for him on foot throughout nearby yards, over fences, and Richard tells investigators that he was in the basement at the time Jelani arrived, but he did see Jelani as he was coming out of the basement go out the front door. So they head south out of the house looking for Jelani, and at some time they take this search via car. So they all get in the car and they start driving around trying to find him. Now, at the time the three of them claim that they were still walking around the neighborhood, investigators state that according to cell phone records of those three, they actually were where they said they were at. Now, 11 p.m., the last call made from Jelani's cell phone was registered to another cell phone whose signal was transmitted about 30 miles southwest from the house in Anoka. Now, there's some big old geeky science going on here, and they even get the geodesimal coordinates of the tower. Uh, of course. I mean, why wouldn't you? That's, that's, that's what I do in, on the weekends. They give you the federal <laughs> registration number of said tower, who owns it, and how tall it is. And if you're wondering, it was 250 feet. That's tall. Yep, 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 yep. Tower-like. It was located next to the Carver County Soil and Water Building. And this is located at 11... 360 Highway 212 in Cologne. So given the tower's location and height and the surrounding terrain, a signal could have easily reached out about 10 miles is what they hypothesize. Now Sprint supposedly agrees to ping Jelani's cell phone at 12.57 a.m. on April 19th, that Sunday that people are looking for him, and they never get the ping back. So either it's dead or it's been powered off. Now to begin with... Let's go back to his behavior, and some of them say that that was a little erratic for him. I mean, just getting up and running out, I mean, that's, that's erratic behavior for anyone. Now, if you believe the time frame, according to his friends, and then corroborated by the girls and his brother and his dad and all that stuff, he's basically started his evening at 7, and he is flying around. He's going here, he's going there, he's never staying anywhere more than 30 minutes. And then he comes back to the house with the three co-workers at 10. So that gives him approximately two and a half hours because he spent 30 minutes playing with his daughter trying to convince his dad to watch her again for some food. So that's two and a half hours or 150 minutes for all of that shit to go down, for him to travel those distances and to go back and forth to those places. So, and if... You're wondering, well, how far is that, Arlo? Well, guess what, girls and boys? I got one of my charts for you. <laughs> so basically, between Mad Jack's and the Sprint store on Jolly, it's roughly three-tenths of a mile. And based on the interviews, he's there for approximately three minutes. 
He then leaves the Sprint store on Jolly and goes to the Sprint store on Colorado, which is 4.1 miles, spends 12 minutes there. He leaves the Sprint store on Colorado and goes to his brother's house, which is a mile and three-tenths, and spends five minutes there trying to convince him to come out with him. Then he leaves his brother's house and goes to his dad's house. That's 10 miles in the opposite direction. Takes him roughly 25 minutes to travel and talk. Then he leaves his dad's house and goes to Victory Grill to look for the girls, which is 11, almost 12 miles. Spends 30 minutes there, then leaves Victory Grill and goes to the house party, which is another 7.8 miles and another 20 minutes. So you're looking at roughly 35 miles driven in 95 minutes spent driving. Hmm. So, like I said, he's hopping that evening. Now, according to Gannon and Gilbertson, they felt like that that was not that much time for one person and that much activity in such a sh- you know short amount of time. I mean, he's hopping. And assuming that he does know the area very well and any road construction and making sure that he used the shortest distance possible, accounting for speed limits, vehicle traffic, traffic lights, like I said, he would have driven approximately 35.2 miles. Now, Gannon and Gilbertson actually went and drove those routes and actually verified the data. So they're saying, yeah, that's exactly what the estimate is, pretty close. So if he only had 150 minutes that night within which to drive and 95 minutes were spent driving, then he would have only had 55 minutes to be physically present at all of those locations. Now, that doesn't include any time to get in and out of his vehicle, park it, or walk up to each location from where he's parked. According to them, it comes across as mundane and trivial, but that lessens, they feel like that lessens the 55 minutes that he had to spend at the locations down to even under 45 minutes. Now, statements made by his family were corroborated by his cell phone record. The calls his mother said she had made were there. His father said he saw Jelani sitting in his vehicle texting at about 9.30, and I think his dad was actually off by 10 minutes, but just which is still a pretty good estimate. Perhaps Donnie actually saw Jelani make a phone call to Donnie Mangelani? Donnie Angelani <laughs> saw him make a phone call and send his final text messages between the 9.18 p.m. and 9.21 p.m. However, the location referenced by Jelani in the message concerning where he was does not match the cell phone records. And he did it, you know, like a liar. <laughs> <laughs> So in the text message, and we'll put a screenshot of the text message up there, he states... No, we won't. Yeah, we will. We know. I got pictures right here. I made sure I put pictures in the notes. We always say that. Like, if people uh, cross-referenced us, hey, they did say they were going to do that. They never did that. So the text message says, Jelani states in his, as he starts it, quote, over around my mom's place at my old co-worker's crib. Whoever he texts replies, cool, when we watch in Splinter tonight or tomorrow night. Splinter? Yeah, I don't know what Splinter is. 
He was the he was in charge of the um, Ninja Turtles. No, he hated the Splinter. Splinter hated him. He wasn't. The, no, Splinter was there. No, Splinter was not the. You're thinking Shredder. Okay, I was. <laughs> Don't test me on this. <laughs> I am extremely knowledgeable about the Ninja Turtles. Okay, I'm sorry. So. On April 17, 2009, at approximately 9.21 p.m., someone texts Jelani, what are you doing? And that's when he says, I'm over here at my mom's place, about to go to my, crib, my co-worker's crib. They ask when they're going to watch Splinter, and that's at within a couple of minutes. And then whoever had been texting him texts him again at 1.35 on the 18th in the morning. Mm. Says, hey, man, where are you at? And then text him again at 2.37 p.m., hey, where are you at? And, of course, there's no response from Jelani. Now, asking why he would lie, they hypothesize, Gannon and Gilbertson hypothesize, that he was looking to get out of watching that movie that night. Hey, man, I'm sorry. I already made plans. I got this party I'm going to. Maybe we'll do it some other time. But that makes sense. Why did the text conversation end so abruptly? Uh, that's a good question too. So for some reason, when Jelani leaves his dad's home at about 9:21 p.m. and at the latest probably 9:35 p.m., he must have driven straight to the house in Anoka. And the most direct route either takes you 17 or 22 miles and is approximately 35 minutes either way. Now this would have put him there at when they said, the other three said he got there at 10 p.m. Had he realized that it was late and whoever he was texting, he didn't want to bother anymore, but they're the ones trying to find out if he wants to come watch the movie tomorrow. He could have also just set his phone down in his car and never checked his text message well, again. I just looked up the movie, and yeah, he was probably trying to get out of it. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't look too good don't have a whole lot of hope for it. Who's in said movie? Nobody you'd know. Okay, that's even uh, better. Except for a uh, dude that was in Road Trip. Oh, yeah? Yeah, one of those guys. Okay. The, the one that smoked the pot in the movie. Right he there. smoked the weed, too? Yeah. Okay. I wonder if he got the clover. Oh, uh, Shay Wig, Wigham? You might know him. He's He was in... He's been in. He's been in some. Yeah, stuff. I don't know him. All right, he was in Joker. I don't care. Come on, man. He was the cop in Joker. Okay, he's the cop in Joker. People, he's, he's, he's in Splinter. If you want to see a bad movie. <laughs> All right. So there's another part of the timeline that was puzzling, and it's the fact that he Jelani had told his dad that he was going to spend more time with the girls at the bar, which was about halfway between his dad's house and the house in Anoka. According to the girls and his brother, Jelani never makes it to Victory Grill. Now, if he leaves his dad's house, like I had previously stated, at the latest at 935, he's hauling tail. I have you know that gentleman appeared in the episode of Justified. Well, then I'll have to get reconsider my previous <laughs> statement. He would not have had time to even stop part running and say anything. So he must have driven straight from his father's house in Minneapolis to the house in Anoka. But 
we're supposed to believe that he did go back to the parking lot near the Sprint store and Victory Grill in order to leave his vehicle there and get a ride with one of the people that lived at the house. So that didn't match the 30-minute timeline either. Mm-mm. He had left one co-worker, Edgar, with the other one, Mark, who was hosting the house party at the Sprint store on Colorado Lane near the bar where the girls were. Edgar tells investigators that he gave Jelani a ride to the party. So that means that Edgar had to be or had to have been waiting inside the Sprint store after closing or waiting in his own vehicle in the parking lot for Jelani to return. Now, the question is, was the fact that Edgar was waiting for him the reason why Jelani was in such a rush to get back? So that meant that Edgar had to have been waiting either inside the Sprint store after it closed or in his own vehicle in the parking lot waiting for Jelani to get there so that he could ride with Edgar to the house party. So was Jelani in a hurry and bypassed seeing the girls again because he knew that Edgar was waiting on him? And if so, why not use his cell phone and tell him, hey, man, i got to stop by somewhere and I'll just meet you at the house. That way we won't ride together. That way we don't go to sleep with our heads in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a logistics problem here. If one or both of the co-workers had waited at the Sprint store for Jelani to stop and pick them up in order to take them to the house party, then Jelani's car would have been at the house in Anoka. If the co-workers had gone home early on their own, and Jelani drove straight to the house party from his dad's, then his his car would have been at the house in Anoka. However, his car was recovered on the 18th, the day after, in the parking lot near the Victory Grill and the Sprint store on Colorado Lane. Supposedly, remember, he left said party on foot. So either he did catch a ride or the car was moved. Hmm. Now, another possible answer was that he drove there, parked it, then got a ride to the party from someone other than the players that we know about. But if that's the case, who gave him the ride? I don't know, man. Why are you asking me? Because you're supposed to know these things. (laughs) I'm not an investigator. Now, supposedly this is completely out of nature for Jelani. He did not like being stuck anywhere and dependent upon others to take him home. He always drove himself so he could leave when he wanted to. Keep in mind, he has a girl that is his world, according to his family. So he does not want to be somewhere and he can't get back to her. I mean, that makes sense. But what he did doesn't make sense. No. So... If he had left his car, like I said, in the parking lot and accepted a ride from Edgar, then somebody's got to take him back to his car. And that just doesn't sound like someone in Jelani's situation. And according to his family, that's out of the ordinary. And furthermore, if the phone call informed him of some emergency that required his immediate action, then only three possible outcomes are happening one he either had to ask for a ride back to his car two 
he had to ask to borrow a car, or three, he had to call a taxi. Hmm. I would bet on the taxi being the most likely scenario. I don't. I mean, who just? How many people do you know just let somebody else borrow their car? Not me. Yeah, I mean, hey, man, gonna borrow your car? Sure. No. I the only th- the, it just ugh. doesn't happen. The only time I did it, and this, and against my better judgment, I did it. But I was working with a coworker who had actually driven his wife's car to work, and we actually lived about two miles apart. Mm-hmm. And he needed to go pick up his weed eater from the shop, and I tried my best to be like, "Look, man, I'll just go get your weed eater." No, 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 I gotta pay for it. And I was like, "Shit." Okay, here's my truck. And I'm thinking the whole time, if you wreck my truck, I'm going to have to kill you. You boys like Mexico? (laughs) Yeah. Like uh, Ferris Ferris Bueller's style. Yeah, that's why I'll never have a nice car. Because of Ferris Bueller, I'll be too afraid of people. I'll park it somewhere and they just go joyriding. All right, so according to Gannon and Gilbertson, they don't believe that he ever was at the party. They don't give a whole lot. But he was seen there, right? No. They don't give a whole lot of information of why they believe that. They just come out and say they didn't. But if you're seen at the party, or, well, I mean, maybe everybody's lying. Maybe maybe they're just vouching for him. There's definitely something going on that there's way more to this than the information that's out there. Right. Their conclusion, and this still isn't, I don't think it holds a whole lot of water, but I'll explain it to y'all. Their conclusion states that Jelani had given Edgar a ride from one Sprint store to the other around 10 after 8. They were later told by Edgar that he had given Jelani a ride from the Sprint store to the house in Anoka. So had Edgar left his vehicle at the second Sprint store earlier in the day is the question. So no reason was ever offered to why Jelani would opt to get a ride to the house in Anoka rather than driving himself. Nobody, I mean, the only people that know are the three at the house party. So, now there could have been some reasons that he left in such a hurry. One was he was informed by that phone call that some emergency situation had popped up. Either something was wrong at his dad's house, something was wrong with his child or the child's mother. And we've not really brought her up a whole lot, but they, from what I could read and research, they were not living together, even though they had a child together, because he wanted to finish college and have a steady job other than the Sprint store to provide for her and the child. So he was staying at home trying hmm. to save his money, which is very smart. Yeah, that is smart. The second possible thing is the phone call could have been to tell him that someone was headed to the party and he didn't want to be there when they got there. Now, that would also account for him leaving abruptly. Leaving on foot would have exposed him to being spotted by whoever was coming to the party. Mm-hmm. That could explain the path through the backyards and the golf course, but it doesn't explain why you're going over a fence, a railroad track, and through a pond and losing your shoes and your hat. I'm not. Nope. I'm not doing I'm going to take my chances of pulling my hat down low <laughs> and walking by. The other was maybe he left, and before he could even get clear of the house, whoever was coming saw him. 
Now, the third reason was that they hypothesized was that he wanted to get out of the house because something was going on in the house and he faked the phone call. And succeeding in leaving the house, they realize he's gone and they chase him. And they are the ones that are responsible for his disappearance slash death. If that's the case, if you, if you run with the third theory, he may have never actually left the house at all. He may have been kept against his will. And then if he did drive to the house, someone drove his, his car back to the Victory Grill parking lot to kind of throw investigators off. So we say all that to make you c- completely confused. <laughs> I'm thoroughly confused. But now we get into the coroner's report. Yeah, here's the craziest thing. This gentleman was found with clean socks. In a pond. In a pond. Without his shoes. Without his shoes. And a hat. <laughs> but there's nothing. There's The coroner is going to state, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Yeah, they ruled, ruled the death inconclusive. Okay, it wasn't a robbery. He was found with his wallet in his back pocket. He did not drown. There's no sign of heart attack. Uh, yeah, he rules out a heart attack. He rules out everything. I'm saying there's no, there's no wounds. There's no bruising. Bruising. Nothing. There's nothing. He's just dead. He's the pillar of health, and he is dead. Yeah. They don't find elevated liver enzymes. They don't find anything. They, there's no drugs in his system. There's no alcohol in his system. He did not die of a heart attack. He did not die of blunt force trauma. He didn't drown. What the hell happened to this guy? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Sheriff... You're 24 years old. You just don't kill over and die. Not without it being some, like, freak aneurysm or something like that. I mean, they, and they ruled all that out. When you got a forensic pathologist that does an, all, uh, uh, does an autopsy, and... They're like, I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. That's his job. That's a professional... And he he doesn't know he can't he can't he's he he can't spit it out there Porky I'll be I'll be I'll be <laughs> he can't tell what happened it's that's insane now Sheriff's Lieutenant Paul Summer said that there were no signs of a fight where Jelani's tennis shoes were found there was no signs of a fight or a struggle where the other tennis shoe was found or his hat and all of his friends and family have cooperated with the police from the beginning of the investigation. Quote, the coroner couldn't say why he died. That's what makes this investigation so difficult. It is particularly frustrating because normally in a situation like this, we expect certain things to be apparent. If he's found in a pond, you would think he drowned. He did not. Or if he was dumped there, you would think you'd find an anatomical cause of death or a drug overdose. That was not there either. We have extremely little information to go on. End quote. So what, I mean... Well, getting in, getting a little bit more in-depth... In they, the, they do state that he was dead before he got in the water. Right. They are able to tell that much because he did not drown. What they... And we're going to dive a little deeper into the coroner's report and specifically on rigidity, rigidity and lividity. Yep. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> because it's rigid, that's why it's hard. <laughs> All right. Nicely done, sir. So Jelani was discovered in the pond lying on his back in two to three feet of water. 
The medical examiner specifically pointed out that the body was transported and stored in a supine position, which is on his back. Then at the time of the autopsy, Dr. Amatazio described anterior lividity, which means on the front of his body, all extremities and the face, and stipulated that lividity would not blanch. During the conclusion, investigators learned that she immediately knew that the position of his body at recovery was incongruent with his lividity. She stated that in order for lividity to fix anteriorly on his body, he had to have been deceased and lying on his chest somewhere for a period of about 12 to 18 hours. Since he was found lying on his back in the pond, that meant that someone had to have moved his deceased body to the pond. Furthermore, the fact that lividity did not displace while he was transported and stored in the supine position for a period of about 47 hours, and that is the recovery of his body to autopsy it. That indicated that lividity was fixed before Jelani went into the pond at the golf course. So that, I mean, that leads to the question, now who moved him? Right. And why? What was the point? Now, they dive into rigidity, and supposedly, by looking at rigidity, this will give an accurate estimation of the progression of rigor relative to time. The medical examiner stated that rigor was just starting to relent at recovery and described the position of his right arm. Remember, he was found floating high in the water on his back with his arms down at his side. His right arm, part of his chest, and the front of his face were out of the water. His right arm was flexed 90 degrees at the elbow and pointed upward. At autopsy, Dr. Amatazio wrote, that rigor had subsided from the jaws, the arms, and legs, which meant that rigor was completely gone. The extent of rigor in his body established a time bracket. Jelani was of average height and weight, 5'10 to 5'9, 150 pounds to 167 pounds, depending on what you read. The weather was fairly mild during the period he was missing. Daytime temperatures ranged anywhere from 50 to 85 degrees. Therefore, given an average body and a temperature environment, had Jelani died on land, then he would have gone into and out of rigor in about 36 hours. If this was truly a drowning scenario and Jelani had died in the water and since he was recovered from the water, then it was logical to use a 2 to 1 time delay ratio for water when calculating estimates. That would have resulted in a 72-hour period. Since he was out of rigor at autopsy, that tells us that he probably died about 72 hours prior to autopsy in order to go through the whole rigor cycle before the autopsy began. This means that the latest possible time of death for Jelani could have been around 12 p.m. on April 24, 2009. Remember, he goes missing on the 17th or early in the morning of the 18th. Mm-hmm. Since rigor was in Jelani's body when he was recovered from the pond, that meant that rigor had most likely not started any more than 72 hours prior to his recovery. That also meant that Jelani could not have died more than 72 hours prior to recovery. However, 
the medical examiner had described rigor as just starting to relent. So an adjustment has to be made in order to position the rigor where it would reflect rigor just going out at time of recovery. How many times are you going to say rigor? A lot. <laughs> rigor. Dr. Amatazio had suggested that in order for lividity to fix, that's a car alarm, people, prior to him being placed in the water. I missed the basement. Me too. (laughs) Jelani had to have been deceased on land for a period of 12 to 18 hours. If that's the case, then you have to adjust time of death for the first 12 hours while he is in rigor. So the earliest possible time of death could have been 1 a.m. on the 24th of April, 2009. So he could have passed away any time between 1 a.m. on the 24th and 12 p.m. on the 24th. So where was he in the days he was missing? That's the million-dollar question. Now, the medical examiner goes on to describe his body with a green discoloration in both the RLQ and LLQ. I'm pretty sure that's probably... The right lower quadrant and the left lower quadrant. You're smarter than me, brother. I wouldn't know. As well as marbling across the whole body. She stated the skin on his abdomen was taut, and the examination of the autopsy photos confirm and also record no bloating was present in the abdomen or scrotum. There was some initial and minor skin slippage on his torso. Jelani's hands and feet appeared to be in quite good shape. They presented with minor washerwoman's hands, and no indication of degloving. Degloving? I'm assuming that's just when the skin falls right. off. Right. Oh. <laughs> His body and head hair were also still intact. It was also noted that a slime of mildew had begun to form on Jelani while he was in the pond. This predominantly covered exposed flesh on his face and neck. At the time of autopsy, Dr. Amatazio commented on a white fungus, which is a yeast form, that had grown on the exposed skin. This, too, was observable in autopsy photos. A full-body radiologic scan indicated that there were no cracked or broken bones and that there were no foreign objects in his body. Wrecked him. Damn near killed him. Yep. (laughs) So the condition of Jelani's body at the time of autopsy and the rate at which it was decomposing confirmed that he had not been deceased any longer than the equivalent of about 36 to 48 hours. Fixed anterior lividity told that he had been dead at least 12 hours prior to entry into the water. Rigor had completely fixed and locked his right arm in a bent position, which meant that Jelani had been dead at least 12 hours prior to entry into the water. The problem is Jelani had been missing for eight days but the post-mortem artifacts showed that he could have only been dead for a period of approximately 36 to 48 hours. Analysis was complicated by the fact that he was deceased on land, then in water, then back on land in the examiner's cooler. Each of those environments would have affected the development and progression of post-mortem artifacts differently. Land with no time delay, water with a two-to-one time delay, and the cooler with a three-to-one time delay. The presence of moisture would have specifically had an impact on ocular changes and maceration. Now, the toxicology report tested Jelani's urine and revealed a level of 22 micrograms per milliliter of GHB. Mm. And if you want to know what GHB is, it's 
gamma hydroxybutyric acid. Also known as Georgia Homeboys. <laughs> if you gangsta. In the toxicology report, the amount of GHB in Jelani would have equated to a wakeful state. And it's listed as anything under 52 micrograms is you're awake, you're just not really coherent. Anything between 52 and 156 micrograms, you're in a light sleep. 156 to 260 micrograms, you're in a moderate sleep. And anything over 260 micrograms, you're dead to the world in a deep sleep. How, how much did he have again? 22. So he's just, he's, it's not a whole lot. No. It's enough probably to make him swimmy-headed and kind of out of it. I guess almost like a drunken state. Well, that's what it is. I mean, GHB is is a date rape drug. Right. Basically for people who are, you know, not suave. Who are jerks. <laughs> yeah. Not suave. Yeah. I'm not that suave, so I just drug them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, with the 22... Micrograms per milliliter, he would not have had complete control of his faculties. He would have been euphoric, confused, sleepy, demonstrating poor judgment and compliment to the wishes of others. He would have been slightly clumsy, but could have moved under his own power and easily directed to where anyone wanted him to go. Considering that GHB has such a short half-life, 18 to 60 minutes, Jelani could have had as much as 140 micrograms per milliliter in his system 36 minutes to two hours earlier, which would have put him in the light sleep area. That would have made it extremely easy to control him and abduct him. The medical examiner noted this and made a special comment about the level of GHB in Jelani's system in the final autopsy report. But is that, would it be enough to, what if he, are we thinking that maybe he had a bad reaction and... Was, I don't know. See, that's the thing. It wasn't. If you're just in the light sleep thing, if you don't do something to him, I don't know how it works. But I would assume that once it's out of your system, you kind of wake up and your groggy is all get out. Mm-hmm. But what I'm what I'm trying to get at is, it could have possibly just been a bad reaction to it, and that's what caused his death. Or do we? I don't see. I don't know. I mean, I was. I would assume as as in depth as the autopsy would, they would have noted that he had a bad reaction, but. And that bad reaction, wouldn't it have caused something that they could have found? I would have think so. Like a stopped heart or inflamed lung tissues where he couldn't breathe or they didn't find any vomit in his lungs or his esophagus. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't asphyxiate that way. No. All right, so according to a close friend of Jelani's, like we had stated, the party really wasn't a party. He used to work at the Sprint in Brooklyn. His friends picked him up from that Sprint store because he was not supposedly familiar with the Anoka area. These friends were old co-workers, and he had tried to minister them in the past. Supposedly, they all went outside to smoke a cigarette. Jelani supposedly went first. Then the three friends went outside, and that's when they found him gone. They claimed to get in their cars and drive around, yet... Yeah, we are taking their, them on face value. We're giving them the benefit of the doubt and agreeing with what with their story at this point. According to this friend, he lives in Anoka, and Jelani would have known where his house was at, and he never made any attempt to come that direction. On April 20th, 2009, police officers were at the house party, or the party where, or the house where the party took place. They took print statements and a piece of carpet, which is 
raises it looks as odd. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of odd. Supposedly they were there for about two hours. Piece of carpet. Yeah. Hmm. In a news clip released by KSTP, one of the three friends, a young man named Ehrman, who found Jelani's shoes and hat, says that they were going out for a smoke when Jelani put his head down and left. Now, if they were going together, wouldn't they have been close behind and seen him run away or something? How would he know to look in the neighbor's yard and near the railroad tracks to find Jelani's things? This does not seem to add up. Mm. It is kind of strange. So the theories, and this is one that was posted on a blog, and it's hard to read, but I'm going to attempt it. Good God, these people can't spell. <laughs> hey, I can't either, man. It starts off with, with, why in the hell would a seemingly healthy, sane, spiritual, athletic, 24-year-old young, 24 young father go missing? Apparently, we know he didn't, he didn't hop a slow-moving train like cops' harebrained-ass idea at the beginning of the search. So I guess he threw his shoes around in the neighbor's backyard, left his hat on the tracks, then walked in one direction to the bar, then changed his mind, went to the golf course, and decided to swim in the pond. Honestly, I believe he was possibly drugged or jumped, and he tried to run away from his attackers. Well, he clearly wasn't jumped. Well, or they may have attempted to jump him, but they were not successful because there was no bruising, there was no anything. So, This guy goes on to say that he tried to run away from his attackers and ran up the railroad tracks, but never made it because he was caught somewhere before he reached the bar, which explains why the dogs could not track his scent any further. And remember, if the dogs lose your scent, either A, you climbed a tree, or B, somebody put you in a car. They're not <laughs> climbed a tree. <laughs> they're, they're dogs, man. They're going to be able to smell your ass up a tree. So the more likely situation is he got into a vehicle. Yeah, I believe that's what happened as well. This person goes on to state... Also, somehow this seems to be a setup. Why was his car left in Champlain? He could he clearly could have driven to Anoka. Why was it he picked up from his home in Brooklyn Park to attend this party in Anoka? I believe this was simply a plan to isolate isolate him, isolate him so he wouldn't have any mode of transportation than to be on foot. Also, these quote friends that he was with, why didn't they call police when they couldn't find him? I mean, if I picked up someone to attend a party in an area they're not familiar with, I would definitely call them well, and possibly the police if I couldn't had, find them. I mean, they also had marijuana, so, I mean, maybe they didn't want to get the cops involved because they didn't want to, you know, raise suspicions in that way. Well, and they said, this guy goes on to say, I wouldn't just call it a night because obviously they had no way of getting around. The biggest sign that this is fishy and the police's idea of no foul play is bullshit. No one floats into a pond if you find a body there. It was placed there. Someone would have been a, would have seen a body in the pond if he was actually there since April 17th. Truth has to go and get out and be he wasn't at some point on April 25th and early morning April 25th someone placed him there. What goes in the dark always comes to light. You may get away today, but bad deeds are always repaid. You will reap what you sow. I pray for his family and the peace of his daughter. Now, we kind of touched on the smiley face killers, and that's a... this If it is associated with that, that's this is an outlier case because most of... And I couldn't find any. I didn't spend a whole lot of time looking. But I think all of the smiley face killer victims are white college kids. Am I wrong? You're not wrong at all. And they are found... Drowned it did. Right. This guy didn't drown it did. And 
if they if it was Smiley Face, they would have put him in the river, which empties into the Mississippi. I don't know. It's just yeah. Typically, yeah. If if we're to believe the Smiley Face killer theory, most of them are fi- found in running water, like a river. They're not found in ponds, and they are typically white males, college age, intoxicated, and they are later found drowned. None of this happened here. He was not intoxicated. He is not white. He was not found in running water, and he did not drown. So we can speculate on that theory, but I just don't think it meets the criteria. I don't either. And I mean, now what this is, what criteria it does meet, is this is an urban 411 case. Most yes. missing 411s occur in national parks, but this happened in an urban environment, but it meets a lot of that criteria. The missing shoes, him missing for days, seemingly disappearing out of nowhere. It, it's, it's odd. I don't know, man. Now, from, the, from that same book that I quoted all of the, their theories on, they state that one day, and they, as in Kevin Gannon and Dee Lee Gilbertson, state that one day Jelani was at work in the diner and his car sat in the parking lot. The tires on his car had been slashed. Hmm. The family contacted Gannon and Gilbertson late in September of 2009. On October the 9th, Gilbertson met at the Anoka County Sheriff's Office with Jelani's mother, Alice Hamilton, and his godmother, Mamie Singleton. She is also a retired police detective. They spoke with Detective Dan Douglas, who was very open during the meeting, sharing his knowledge of the case material and his concerns about the evidence. Gilbertson and Gannon were not allowed to retain copies of any reports at the time, since that, and it is still an open investigation. Mm-hmm. Gilbertson continued to meet with the family and assisted them with obtaining a copy of the autopsy report and photographs. They go on to state that they strongly and they always advocate that victims or surviving family members should receive one free copy of the autopsy materials upon request due to their cost. Mm -hmm. When Gilbertson contacted the Anoka County Medical Examiner's Office, he discovered that there were 227 photos which would have cost the family $544.39, including all fees and taxes. Whew. He arranged to preview all the photos on November 18th and to pay for only those that were selected, which was 46. Mm-hmm. Prior to leaving that day, he had an opportunity to go through the photos with, med- with the medical examiner who performed the autopsy. Autopsy. Good God. The autopsy, <laughs> Dr. Janice Amatazio and learned that they shared many of the same interpretations of the forensic evidence. Between January and March of 2010, Gannon and Gilbertson helped the family to contact producers from America's Most Wanted, as well as technicians from Via Forensics, to have Jelani's cellular telephone examined. And that's where they got all the cellular data from. That'd be a good place to get it. It's from cell phone. Yep. Now, <laughs> we like I said, we've not man- we did not mention his baby mama, but they had a good relationship even though they were living separately. Her name is Dina Anderson, and she was one of those who searched for Jelani in April. While searching, she discovered that she was pregnant with their second child the day before his body was found. Dang, that sucks. Yeah. She named their baby boy born later 
in 2009, Jelani Dante Brinson Jr. in his honor. Oh, that's good. That's sweet. Jelani had to have died much earlier than proposed by any accidental death scenario. Furthermore, it confirmed that Jelani did not walk around in his sock feet for seven days before finding his way into the golf course pond. Clearly, Jelani had to have been abducted on April 17th, held somewhere for seven days, murdered on the 24th, and then dumped into the pond within about 18 hours and then recovered shortly after lunchtime on the 25th. I mean, how was he murdered? Was this some untraceable poison? I don't see that. That's what I don't understand with some of these that they can't put a finger on. You know, on paper, he's pillar of hell, average, athletic, 24-year-old young man. Yeah. They don't just die. No. This, I mean, it's ridiculous to think that he just killed Ogre. I, I mean... I don't know, man. I just don't know. I don't know about this. I don't either. This is weird as hell. Should you have any information about Jelani Brinson's death, please contact the Anoka County Sheriff's Office at 763-323-5000 or email the sheriff and text, quote, TIP674 and your tip to 274637, which is the word crimes. Or you can call 1-800-222-8477. You can also submit a tip using a fill-in-the-blank form that is available online at tipsubmit.com. I don't have a theory. (laughs) I mean, I don't really either. There's, I mean, I don't have a theory. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that we know for a fact, medically, from the autopsy report, he did not die the night he went missing. Absolutely. I think they did a great I mean, job in, in documenting that. And unfortunately, they can't find a reason for his death. Yeah. Somebody out there knows something. They've got to. And I just pray that, you know, they can let the family know and their conscience gets the better of them. But, I mean, with the GHB in his system and... I mean, I know the friends have been cooperative, and I couldn't find whether or not they had been interrogated, but you would think if they had, that would have been in some news articles, but I didn't see any of that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I really, I mean, what? We ask every week for your (laughs) theories and tips, and please, you know, help us out here, because we don't have a clue how this one happened. I I got nothing. Other than maybe, possibly, alien abduction. Maybe. I mean, surely to God, aliens know how to kill us without being traced. But the man had no enemies. He wasn't robbed. He didn't... He wasn't beaten. If they someone did hold him for several days, why? Yeah, I don't get it. What was, what's the point? Yeah, because it wasn't like he was wealthy and could give him anything. The only thing... If you're holding him, is he saw something and they were afraid he was going to say something, or he they thought he saw something and he was totally clueless and didn't have any idea what they were talking about. But again, how do you explain his death? Yeah, um, you can't. Period. Thanks for stopping by, guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you really there's just nothing. 
I would absolutely love to hear somebody's theories. Yes. If you can give us a plausible explanation, I would most m- most enjoy hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So recommendations and I'll go first. Oh, go go ahead then, I guess. I got mine pulled up fast. I am going to recommend the new Netflix show, Top Secret UFO Projects Declassified. Oh, fancy. I watched the first one, and this is actually a recommendation on our Mysterious Bruce fan page on Facebook from Miss Kathleen Little. We have a fan page? Yeah, I think you started it. Oh, yeah, I did. (laughs) She states that this show is extremely informative because they put the sightings in chronological order. And it makes the story very cohesive. Cool. I am going to recommend the YouTube page, The Missing Enigma. Yeah, they had another one, and I ain't watched it yet. Yeah. Um, it's really good stuff. Um, it's all about missing people, as you can probably tell. And I think the guy does a really good job uh, describing it. It's actually where I found the robot grandma case on this page. So They... Um They've got some cool-ass artwork, too. I know it's one of those that you can put on and you don't have to watch, but mm-hmm. it's very, the, whoever they got to do their artwork is is really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> all right, well, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we've got for this week. Coach, you got anything else? I sure don't, buddy. Deuces.